Hello and welcome to this latest installment of the Tech Law podcast series in preparation for the DLA Piper European Technology Summit uh, this year, which we're holding on the 5th of October. I'm Mark O'Connor. I'm a technology lawyer based in our London office of DLA Piper, and I'm one of the co-leads of our Artificial Intelligence Working Group. And today, I'm delighted that we've got David Bell to join us. David's a director at Hampleton Partners, and he's a leading M&A and corporate finance uh, specialist within that consultancy for various companies with technology right at their core. David, please, can I ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about Hampleton? Hi, Mark. Yeah, well, uh, pleasure to be here. So, uh, my name is David Bell. I'm a director at Hampleton. We are a London-headquartered European uh, and US-wide um, uh, boutique focusing exclusively on the technology sector. Um, health tech is, is one of those particular verticals where, where I have a, a certain degree of specialism, I, I would like to think. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to, to joining you today, Mark, as well as uh, at the, um, the summit. And please do note, dear listeners, that this podcast is, uh, does precede a panel, a panel discussion where David will be joining us in person um, to explore health tech issues at our European Technology Summit 2021, as I said, to be held on the 5th of October. It's going to be on a virtual platform online this year. So, Health Tech, David, let's get into this. And can I start with really just setting our parameters? What are we talking about? What do we mean when we talk about Health Tech? What do you see as that encompassing as a term? That, that in itself is quite an interesting question. Um, I think when uh, individual practitioners talk about Health Tech, um, they often refer to, to different areas. Um, I would say that um, health tech typically um, is often seen as, say, more sort of consumer focusing, whereas med tech is often seen as B2B. Uh, that being said, um, certainly many of the fundraisers and the MA that we work with, those two definitions seem to, seem to merge into each other. Um, for example, um, you might think of health tech as a, uh, as a wearable software, um, measuring sort of atrial fibrillation on your, on your wrist, or conversely, everything up to um, the electronic patient record systems productivity, queue management solutions, and then more into the med tech, which is possibly more clinical, such as maybe devices, DNA monitoring, um, diagnostics, um, uh, and things like that. But I think for the purpose of the day, health tech probably covers uh, covers both of those areas, um, all the way from sort of consumer and the data implications of that, all the way through to infrastructure, um, moving into sort of B2B software and devices, and then sort of the deep tech underlying that, working all the way through to um, things like AI machine learning application for uh, in, in vitro um, discovery of drugs. So it's a, it's a broad area. And I think it's just important when, when we are talking about it to, to identify what, uh, what area we're talking about. Um, I think the other, uh, the other aspect is the, um, not only is it just the, the health tech uh, business areas, but it's the, the legal issues underpinning them, which are different for, for, for certain of those areas, um, certainly B2B, um, B2C, uh, and the regulation, where I think it's um, particularly relevant for some of the regulatory driven um, uh, M&A and financing that we see. A number of legal issues probably for our listeners start to spring to mind when you think about how industry uses health tech and has done from, from the early days right through to the um, latest uh, sort of bleeding edge technologies. Um, immediately, I'm thinking about uh, patients, patient data, therefore, that's sensitive personal information, isn't it, about people's health and well-being. Uh, thinking about issues of ethics, particularly if we're bringing technology into things that human beings would have previously done. And so there are ethical concerns there and so forth. And I, I, I'm, I'm reminded of um, uh, 
a conference some years ago hearing speakers from Alderhey and DeepMind and how they'd come together uh, to bring essentially quite a basic AI-powered solution uh, in the health tech sphere. But um, albeit that it was uh, relatively low tech, it was brilliant in the sense that what it did was um, it created a way of freeing up the clinicians from the drudge and the uh, the signposting for worried parents coming into the hospital because that was now done by FAQs and systems on the on the wall and screens and so on leaving those clinicians to focus on what they've been trained for yeah you know, the the real healthcare issues so is that what do you do you agree is that is that where when we talk of health tech we think of tech coming in to uh, enhance the human patient angle to improve and yes. and, and take us forward into the future I, I, I think that's right. So I think one of the, um, uh, taking a step back, one of the key elements of technology in any vertical is the ability to analyse data, point one, and then the very significant scalability which that brings. Right. If you then look at that in a health tech perspective, there are two poss- there are two probably relatively uh, critical limiters to that. Um, AI machine learning and, and equivalents need to access data. Um, and that data either needs to be in a significantly structured format uh, for, ease of, uh, for ease of analysis, um, or if it's not unstructured, to become structured. And secondly, it needs to be sufficient in, um, in volume that it can be deployed and reviewed in detail. So I think one of the, uh, um, one particular area that, uh, that I'm thinking of is that the, um, if you look at say, the UK health service, the, uh, it is I think one of the second or third biggest single conduits of patient information um, globally, which is why many software companies want to access the data. Yeah. The difficulty to a degree is it is very, very unstructured and not necessarily in a digitized format. So as a consequence, you see many of the EPRs, um, Cerna, Allscripts, et cetera, being used to a greater or large degree as just a document repository for handwritten or digital notes, but ultimately in an unstructured format. So I think one of the areas where we see there's a, a huge possibility for application of technology to this data, but the difficulty is actually getting the data, practically getting it, and then Mark, to your point, um, giving the regulatory approval to access it. Another helpful or interesting area of um, discussion, which is the regulatory limitations to um, data capture. So if you're, for example, conducting a medical trial, uh, you want to be able to access a lot of patient data very quickly and be able to access the patient data as it's being generated. Or for example, if you're looking to monitor chronic conditions. The difficulty with some of these is that the medical devices that typically uh, operate in these areas are um, are either implants, uh, which it is very difficult to, to get you to, to deploy them en masse, or the medical data which is captured is of not, not nearly sufficient quality to be medically applicable. There is an emerging field um, uh, called software as a medical device, uh, which addresses a couple of these areas. Uh, and what this effectively does is say it, it gives you a regulatory compliance software solution that sits on a device and makes that device medically compliant. Now, the benefit of that is when the regulations change, you only have to change the software and not the device, point one, but also within reason, a number of devices which aren't currently medically compliant can be turned to become medically compliant by deployment of the software. With the application of this software as a medical device, that enables massive um, capture of data from a very large population of individuals by virtue of the fact that the medical device can be captured, sorry, the non-medical wearable or medical de- uh, non-medical device can be classified as a medical device for the benefit of soft data capture 
and therefore huge amounts of data can be can be captured. That overcomes the practical element. There, of course, is the regulatory element in terms of data protection as well. But I think that's one issue where we're certainly going to see coming to the fore. Um, there's a company I've been working with called Fibrotech, which does that for atrial fibrillation. We can discuss that more at the conference. But they've got a very powerful application of, of that for um, preempting the emergence of atrial fibrillation um, within patients. It, it, the data is the new oil um, phrase is, is old now, isn't it? But it's it, still very, very relevant in a conversation like this um, to your examples of Obamacare versus NHS structured, unstructured data. Yeah, if you can crack that. Uh, as as a large um, health tech organization, you can really um, strike gold, can't you? Um, and, and data suggests that health tech companies have really increased from you know, 8 billion in 2016 to 44 billion now, and that curve is going onwards and upwards. And to your point around the software as a medical device, that sounds, that sounds like a key bet, doesn't it? So the, the wearable tech as you say, and if, if you can become the platform, then you know, build it, they will come. The, the developers will bring new, uh, new, new uh, options and uh, solutions for, for who knows what in the future. That's got to, that's got to be where to, where to aim. So you, t- you, take, you take the technologists and those keen beans who can come up with the good solutions, add the power of um, big data, data monetization. So really good algorithms hitting enormous lakes of data um, and learning from it through machine learning techniques and that sort of holy grail of those three together. And, and that's, that's, uh, yes. that's the competitive advantage, isn't it, going forward? Yes, I, I, I would say so. I think the, um, the, uh, the computing power is absolutely there. Um, we see it applied in, uh, in other areas, for example, on financial services. Um, I think the, the difficulties that we described with, um, with healthcare is that it's a, it is a similarly regulatory um, governed area, albeit that maybe the regulations are more country specific than maybe the financial services. Um, and also there is the overlay of the impact of um, patient data uh, and confidentiality, which I think um, whilst one would agree that financial data is, is important to be kept secure, um, I can anticipate that um, having people's medical records uh, not being properly secured would probably be an even greater concern. And it's, um, it, 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 it's certainly managing, um, uh, managing that balance. There is, and the final point of that, to, to bear in mind, within any machine learning or artificial intelligence solution, there is, by its very nature, uh, a degree of inherent human bias. You're training it on data which isn't perfect. Uh, and it's also important to, um, to uh, have some degree of filter to the data over which you're applying the um, these particular algorithms we as human beings are not free of bias so it's almost as if we're holding machines up to a higher standard um, and to your point there about the accuracy of hyper or hypo for example it, it just makes me think about the jokes of um, you know doctors handwriting <laughs> i'm sure these issues come across quite often um you mentioned you mentioned financial services as an analogous regulated um, industry and i think it's quite useful to look at that from time to time isn't it because um, the extent to which um, the regulation is a barrier to health tech or an enabler to health tech and probably that is something that varies across regions um, in in financial services as I think we, we're all aware, aren't we? There, you know, there, there are know your customer KYC and anti-money laundering and so forth handed down uh, from, from um, 
across many countries, across Europe and so forth, international standards. To what extent does that exist in the health tech sphere here? Is, is that an issue and is that boosting the, uh, the health tech industry or is that, is that a hindrance? I think from the, um, from the perspective of the application of the regulations, I think we have to start from the premise that the regulations are probably a good thing. Uh, they have served us you know, to, to, to better or for worse over the last um, how many years that they've been in place. But I think in terms of um, their application to health tech um, specifically, there are areas which are prevalent in healthcare regulation that aren't necessarily prevalent in financial services. So for example, bringing a medical device to market can take up to 10 years. Whereas you, it, uh, it'd be unlikely that you would need 10 years to be compliant with certain elements of the FCA handbook. And I think the, uh, the reason is that whilst um, financial services is predominantly a, um, uh, or almost exclusively in some areas in, in developed markets, um, a digitized commodity, or want a better expression, or digital market, healthcare, it isn't. It's a physical market as well as a, um, as well as an, uh, as well as a digital one. So if, for example, you're looking at the development of, of drugs or the deployment of devices um, or the capture of electronic patient records, these are can be captured in uh, digital format in some instances, but in other instances, you have to jump through many of the regulatory hoops for devices, for example, and that takes time. So I think the application of technology, as we were saying, in terms of the um, software as a medical device, for example, can expedite um, the adherence of these devices to the regulations. So I think technology will be is being seen to be critical in accelerating devices through those regulatory hoops. And to your point about the um, the equivalence of regulation of financial services and health tech, they are equivalent to a degree because they're both highly regulated. But unlike financial services, which don't necessarily rely on measurement to the same degree or physical measurement, healthcare does. And there's that overlay, rightly so, of the regulations in place to protect us, which I think uh, software, B2B software and B2C software to a degree can, can really assist with. David, a number of times there you talked about the, the timing issues perhaps rightly, perhaps wrongly, the time it takes for technologies or at least um, you know, new drugs, new solutions to go through the various uh, medical regulators. Um, but I wonder to what extent we've seen a change in the last 15, 16 months, given the pandemic, given COVID. I know it's been an accelerator generally. Um, a colleague of ours is in the House of Lords and has said that it has propelled them some seven years further forward now that they can uh, debate matters and vote online, which is if, if the House of Lords can do it, then we all can. Now, what about the impact of COVID-19 then on the health tech sector? I think in, in certain areas, we have certainly seen a, a, a rapid emergence of adoption technology. Um, I think probably maybe the most prevalent uh, is, in, is within telehealth. So you just have to look at the NHS app, um, for better or for worse. Uh, that has attempted to uh, be deployed for, for track and trace. Um, uh, that clearly had to be built from scratch. It was done with a couple of the um, with the backing of a couple of the fangs, and is now seen to be up uh, up and running. I think that in other areas, for example, things as, as prosaic as having tele appointments, for example, with your doctor, which is which is by by definition a uh, necessity. Um, there's certainly things like queue management solutions. Uh, there is a degree of telemedicine or telehealth. Um, there is a degree of remote patient monitoring uh, and certainly seeing in terms of investment from some of the um, from the investment fraternity, uh, as well as some of the strategics uh, investing in um, solutions which uh, which support that. So, for example, um, uh, Livongo, you see Armada, 
uh, and others being being quite acquisitive uh, in this space. Um, I think it's worth worth bearing in mind that um, remote patient monitoring is uh, has been a, an area which has grown, which has been growing over the last few years, but it's quite fragmented, deliberately so. So you have sort of multi-solution offerings, you know, Bioformas, Livongo, Amada, Withings. Then certain areas specifically, so diabetes, quite a good area for remote patient monitoring. So you've got people like um, Bertrol, OneDrop, or Glytek in that area. There's mental health that's been very front of mind for the last uh, couple of years. So happy find Lira, uh, and then so you've got behaviour and symptom assessment. People like Doctor Link, uh, which are using sort of clinical decision support tools for, for doctors, and then you've got a range of specialist solutions of so dental monitoring, Align Core, um, you know, people like Hinge Health, which are doing you know, various areas. So. I think remote patient monitoring has really come to the fore in terms of its application, certainly by virtue of the, of, of the pandemic um, and other productivity solutions are also being used. I haven't seen the same uh, acceleration in, for example, um, uh, software to increase the um, deployment of or, or generation of, of um, drugs, but that's probably because actually that's been less required uh, driven by the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, I would certainly be very interested to see the application of technology to the development of vaccines. Um, I've not been close enough to that, uh, but some of the more traditional vaccines and some of them are some of them are less so. As you say, remote monitoring has come to the fore because we've all been remote. Um, but it, it does raise some interesting issues, doesn't it, um, around acceptability, you know, user uptake, as it were. Uh, one example in the sort of test and trace sphere was the way different apps around the world were taken up. Um, and I was struck by um, the comparison between China and Australia, for example. Um, the, for whatever reason, in, in China, the uptake was mandatory and therefore you know, very high percentage, whereas there was a degree of skepticism in Australia, particularly within certain age groups, certain demographics who yep. were perhaps suspicious you know, if I give my data, what else am I giving? And uh, that issue comes to the fore. And it, it also makes me think of what you're saying there around telemedicine um, typically. And I'm just wondering what you think about where telemedicine's going. Um, there's this thing, isn't there, the AI fallacy that um, you know, for something to be artificial intelligence, it ought to have a smiley face and arms and legs. But of course, it doesn't need to display human qualities at all to be machine intelligence. But uh, where, where do you think that that's going? Is that going to help with the... The, the backlog perhaps of uh, caused by COVID? I think, I think that's, a, that's a very insightful observation. I think um, if we look at maybe taking a step back of telehealth more generally, you have the, the, mm. the, the digital health platform. So, you know, your Babylon, your Teladocs, um, and well, I don't know, Teladoc recently acquired InTouch Health, um, uh, which is sort of the all-encompassing platforms. And then you have sort of the remote consultations, which are probably part of that. So you have your, your doctor care anywhere or you're on demand, so okay, probably your crease and, and, and things like that. So these are typically um, more healthcare-focused uh, companies that are um, delivering sort of telehealth solutions and seeing an uptake in, uh, in those uh, across the board. I think certain areas, again, you mentioned it there, is the behavioural elements um, and probably cultural elements as well, which dictate how quickly people gravitate towards these solutions. So wearing a wearable, or a better expression, is very natural, very behavioural. People, people will happily do that. And that's from a consumer perspective. And that's very important because you see these devices being, being worn. If those can be turned into medical devices, that'd be very, very powerful. It's also very important, I think, for a B2B or a B2Doctor solutions, where 
the doctor also needs to be able to fit the technology into his into into his behavioural pattern um, in order to sit alongside the sort of remote patient monitoring that um, that that he's also using. So in terms of empowering doctors uh, for the remote patient monitoring, it's all well and good having the data come in, but it needs to be in a in a format or a platform where doctors can easily use it and access it. So for example, feeding into say clinical decision support tools would be very helpful. If you've got one in three of the population wearing a device that measures certain um, medical presentations, the doctor needs to be alerted, not every time something happens, but when there's something of a, of a degree of significance, for, for example. I think the other area of, of interest in terms of um, remote patient monitoring is not necessarily from the health tech perspective, but for the insurance angle. Uh, many of those individuals who benefit from private health insurance uh, may well have benefited or been offered um, solutions to track uh, or to help them track the maintenance of their own health. For example, being offered vouchers to eat more healthily or tracking by your, you know, using a pedometer, how many steps you've taken. I think those, um, you're starting to see the overlap of the uh, in health insurance and health tech and healthcare coming together. And certainly the investment of health insurance companies or insurance companies in health tech applications, usually sort of B2C, but also B2B2C is certainly a market which um, might, whilst might have been predicted um, is, is certainly flourishing. So I think that's another area of sort of um, a remote monitoring, which plays not to diagnostic and treatment, but to prevention. So, David, mentioning health insurance in the same breath as health tech makes me think about uh, uh, sectors colliding and which which raises the question, who would you bet on? Would you look at a traditional healthcare organisation looking to go into the digital world and harness technology? Or would you bet on a technology company looking to move into the healthcare space? Yes, that, that is probably the uh, the. The, the $64 billion question, um, almost uh, almost literally. I think the um, when you look at the, the cultures of the healthcare companies versus the cultures of the technology companies, they are very, very different. Um, healthcare companies would appear to be very conservative, um, certainly in terms of their, uh, uh, their adoption of technology thus far. Where the technology companies, by definition, that is that is all they do, um, and I think what we're starting to see is the emergence of uh, not not just the fangs, but some of the uh, the telemedicine and telehealth uh, providers um, providing sort of critical productivity solutions for uh, the healthcare providers. So everything from patient data capture. Um, electronic patient records getting data in and more efficiently, the application of AI to, to existing data, which many of the healthcare companies have. So in terms of the, um, uh, the, the speed at which some of these companies are moving, um, purely on that sort of momentum of development, I think my gut would be that you, it's probably more likely to see um, the technology companies making a, um, uh, stealing a march on the healthcare companies uh, in certain areas which are relatively straightforward to get into. I think where you come to things like sort of drug design, you will always, I think, to have the pharma companies you know, front and centre with that, but they will doubtless be using technology developed by um, you know, sort of uh, dedicated specialist, uh, specialist providers. But I think the, um, there is certainly a, uh, a degree of watching the, the health tech giants 
And as they have done with uh, you know, the sort of B2B software, the evolution into sort of B2B stroke B2B health um, has, to, has, has, to be, has to be expected. And I think the, um, if I was to take a bet, it would probably be more health tech moving into healthcare than healthcare adopting technology sufficiently quickly um, to, to prevent the health, to prevent the tech giants sort of stealing, stealing a march on, on, on that space. So, David, what uh, macro factors and technology availability issues are driving the implementation of healthcare solutions? Big question. Um, let's put it in sort of the, the macro factors and, and then the tech drivers. So, macro factors, there's probably three, I'd suggest um, increasing demand, chronic disease prevalence, and rising costs. So, if we start with increasing demand, um, you know, it's, uh, um, aging populations are driving sort of growing healthcare demand, you'd expect. As, as, as you would expect. And I think the um, uh, our est- latest estimates are that the global population will sort of double by sort of, you know, uh, t- t- 20, 2050. Um, and to that end, providers need to reduce inefficiencies to, to, to handle that demand. So there's a digitization and, and automate, automation element there. Chronic disease prevalence, um, that's driven by increasing life expectancy and societal behavior. So as we get older, there'll be more prevalence and also may- maybe the way that our diets, for example, we're carrying out, um, we're eating, et cetera. So, and I think in the UK, it's like 80 to 90% of chronic disease will be a cause of, sorry, 80, chronic disease will cause sort of 80 to 90% of deaths in the UK. So remote monitoring is, is a critical element there. You know, how can we preempt um, and diagnose those solutions, those diseases, uh, so we can manage them better? Everything from diet, dietary steering through to identification of, um, uh, of you know, other, other chronic diseases. And then the, the increasing healthcare costs. So there's greater utilization and, and there's cost inflation. Um, I think sort of 10 to 15% of EU GDP is going to be spent on healthcare. Um, and that was just pre-COVID, let alone post-COVID. So there's there's a demand for disease prevention solutions. Um, so that's more health aware patients or consumers need to want to take control of their healthcare um, and therefore they, they're going to be using it more. So where they'll be that's where I was going to see their doctors, et cetera. So that's the macro factors, increasing demand, chronic disease, and, and rising healthcare costs. And the tech drivers, I'd say, is probably the um, this is proliferation of mobile technology, and that this facilitates remote monitoring, access to care, um, health-aware consumers, um, remote monitoring solutions more generally, um, which we we're talking about chronic about above in terms of chronic disease and rising healthcare costs, and this ensures that users are empowered, but also doctors are empowered to empower users, and doctors can monitor users remotely. That's a very very powerful uh, element. Um, I think there's what three and a half billion, four billion um, smartphone users worldwide. If those could be deployed um, to track and measure healthcare um, presentations, both good and both good and bad, that would give doctors a significant insight, the medical fraternity more widely, a very significant insight into um, disease and health and how to monitor it. And the follow-on from that, therefore, is the growth in um, healthcare data. So. Technology use in healthcare has sort of you know, overwhelmed the sector with data, and that's even thus far. So if you imagine if, if one could digitize using optical character resolution, recognition, or otherwise, all of the handwritten medical records thus far, you'd have a huge pool of data, um, and the point is then to make it structured. Um, so the, to that end, the data growth thus far has been huge. It's only going to uh, accelerate with the proliferation of mobile technology. And you then have the overlay of AI machine learning solutions to analyze this this sort of growing data pool and derive uh, medical and healthcare um, 
uh, answers, one of the expression from that. So proliferation of mobile tech and then the data which is which is going to be generated by that um, are going to be used to support the increased demand, chronic disease prevalence and, and rising healthcare costs. So David, set against those macro and technology factors, what are the drivers then for health tech funding and investment? Good, good question. So I think the um, where where we are seeing um, deployment is certain, uh, in, certainly for funding is probably more in the areas which are the most wasteful in terms of spending, and therefore the most uh, ripe for digitalization, automation, and, and, and disruption. And the larger these are focused on delivering care, uh, both in hospitals and, and also remotely. So if we look at sort of um, telehealth, that's you know, massively facilitated by new technology, and, and that's definitely been adopted by COVID. Um, and that's sort of, you know, 20 to $30 billion market size globally. And then supporting that, as we were just discussing in terms of the macro areas, um, there's the sort of remote patient monitoring, which is sort of, you know, again, sort of 20 to, to $25 billion um, uh, market size. And those two sort of feed into each other. A doctor can take all your measurements um, remotely by using remote patient monitoring, and they can then be uploaded or do a clinical assessment um, using, using telehealth. Um, and then there's sort of provider operations, uh, which is actually delivering the care to patients um, in hospitals. So queue management, um, better use of, say, operating theatres, um, better use of um, imaging, say, MRI or, or CT scanners, um, just to get people through more, more quickly. A good example would, have, would, would be the following. Um, two adjacent um, operating theatres, uh, an operating team moves from one to the other whilst the first one is being prepared and then back again. So you can double the productivity of the uh, of an operating theater, for example. Areas where we see less investment at the moment um, is drug R&D. Um, that's sort of solutions to enable drug discovery and the digitization of clinical trials. We started to see a little bit more, um, but that's that's a, a probably more heavily regulated area. Diagnostic tools, again, um, that, that, that's a pretty heavily regulated area. Wellness solutions, we, we've certainly seen an explosion of those, um, uh, everything from head, headspace onwards. But I think there is a degree of how do we how do we really monetize those? Um, and are they being taken seriously enough by, uh, by consumers? And then health insurance, which again is a regulated area and one step back from healthcare. So telehealth, remote patient monitoring, provider operations are the sort of big areas where we're seeing disruption. And then a sort of second tier down from that is sort of drug R&D, diagnostic tools, wellness solutions and, um, and health insurance. And David, if I can just take you back to COVID again, thinking about the impact of closed borders on uh, a healthcare industry generally, you know, the, the lack, of, um, lack of supply, um, the lack of ability to move, what sort of impact has that had on the health tech industry? So that was also a, a good experience. So from, from personal experience, my, my, my better half works as a, works in neuroradiology. And um, in an odd way, that's probably the area least impacted by, um, by COVID, um, certainly from a work perspective, because a lot of their working is done um, digitally. But I think when you look at the um, and many of the other areas which are require patients to come into hospitals, for example, and the ability for doctors to, to move around, one area which um, uh, which I've certainly heard of probably more anecdotally than in terms of than from a fundraiser or an MA perspective, but also have seen it in terms of the patient queue management is the fact that many patients have deferred coming to hospital um, in order to you know, heed the government's warnings and and possibly out of a degree of fear. 
which means that uh, certainly A&E departments, uh, as well as sort of more chronic departments, are starting to see a wave of patients who have delayed coming in now coming to their front door. Now, we've seen a lot of that in the press about um, you know, sort of patient waiting lists going up. My feeling is that the, um, this will force the NHS um, to accelerate their deployment of remote patient monitoring solutions. Everything from the wearables that we've discussed through to telemedicine, through to, for example, even much more efficient use of, um, uh, of reg- uh, um, uh, local nurses, for example. So a good example of this is followers. A local nurse might historically on her round be required to go to every single patient to check. That's um, a, a considerable waste of time, not least in terms of parking, amongst other things. If that particular nurse or paramedic can, be ident- can identify which of her patients really need to be seen, then that can, that can cause, that can generate considerable savings. So I think from a patient-doctor relationship, um, you will see the productivity solutions coming to bear there, forcibly so. You then have on the flip side, the, um, um, the ability for doctors to attend conferences, share information, uh, and the ability also for drug companies to, uh, to attend these and to, uh, from, a, from a procurement perspective, to, to, to sell their products. Um, from an M&A perspective, I, I, haven't, I, I don't really deal in sort of um, uh, in procurement of drugs per se, but certainly in terms of the dissemination of information, um, everything around sort of clinical, clinical decision support and diagnostics, I certainly think, um, again, this is probably more anecdotal than anything, attending a web conference online with a thousand different doctors is just not nearly as productive or effective in terms of sharing information, asking questions as it is in person. And um, as an, it is anecdotal, but I, uh, I can well imagine that the, um, uh, being able to attend conferences together and sharing information, as well as sharing technology applications and how pe- doctors are using them efficiently and productively, um, you will probably see, what well, I would hope to see anyway, the doctors having, medical professionals doctors having used or adopted many um, more technology solutions by virtue of they've had to over COVID, when they get back together, they will hopefully be waxing lyrical about the productivity and clinical benefits of these to the benefit of the wider medical fraternity, consequently driving adoption. That would be my hope, um, but I wouldn't deign to tell doctors or nurses how to how to do their job. David, just remains to me to say thank you so much and on behalf of our listeners for uh, such uh, generous and unique insights and perceptions, really knitting together those macro issues, the, the new technology the the spectre of regulation and where that might go with a healthy dose of futurology um, and that's been terrific and makes me look forward even more to the panel session which you'll be joining with other colleagues on the 5th of october at the dla piper european technology summit 2021 thanks so much david thank you very much looking forward to joining you